Good morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, if you would take your Bibles and, and uh, turn there. Matthew chapter 1. passage this morning is verse 18 down to verse 25, so let's begin reading uh, together in verse 18, and then we'll pray to begin our study this morning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us in these moments to understand your word and understand the significance uh, of it for our lives, and may we be uh, impacted by what we read in such a way that we walk from this place with thankful hearts because of all that you have provided for us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning and next week, we are considering uh, the birth narratives of Christ together. Uh, this and then on into chapter 2 with, the, uh, with the, the magi that come to, to visit Jesus. And to me, there's something appealing about considering this passage while not being in the Christmas season. Uh, just sort of being able to unpack it for what it is without sort of some of the distractions of the holiday. And I say that, but then there are some of you who believe that Christmas starts immediately after Halloween. And you think that it's okay to put up Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving. Uh, the audacity. I don't, uh, I don't even know what to say to people like yourselves other than what Paul says to the Galatians, you foolish people, who has bewitched you? All right. <laughs> Anyway, I digress, but it's something appealing about looking at this particular passage not being in the Christmas season. We have uh, considered the introduction to the book already, and we have considered Matthew's genealogy of Christ, and now we turn our attention to the, to the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And they're, they're introduced to us in such a way as we come to verse 18. And really what I want to do this morning, actually, is, is look at verses 18 to 25. But then we really want to zoom in on verse 21, which is the, the center and the theme of this passage. And so we begin with the passage in verse 18. Matthew describes for us 
the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And he begins the passage in this way. He says, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Now, there are two primary sections of Scripture that deal with the birth of Jesus. Obviously, here in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and then in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And you'll notice that there are differences in, in emphasis between Matthew and Luke's accounts of the birth narratives. Luke spends more time uh, describing the events from Mary's perspective, where um, Matthew spends his time describing the, the events of the birth in Joseph's perspective, and that's what we'll be considering this morning. Uh, Luke's, uh, Luke's narratives are, are much longer in nature as he goes through Zechariah and Mary and then the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, whereas uh, Matthew's are shorter in, uh, in, in length, and so that's what we'll be considering this morning. So we, as we come to this passage, we begin by seeing that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. We learn from verse 18 that, that before Jesus uh, is conceived, that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, we don't use this word betrothed in our Western culture, but if you're holding an English Standard Version, you'll notice that there's a footnote next to that word betrothed, and it describes it for us in a little bit more detail. It says there that it refers to a legal pledge to be married. It's kind of like being engaged, only with heightened legal significance in, in this day. So in our culture, engagements, uh, while they are assumed to lead to marriage, they don't always lead to marriage, and for the most part, that's okay. But in this culture, to be betrothed carried a heightened significance and, and, and a commitment to it. In fact, in order to break from a betrothal in, in the time of Christ, uh, a, a divorce certificate had to be written in order to break off such an arrangement. And so here we find that Mary and Joseph are betrothed or legally engaged to each other. Now, they are not living together yet. They have not consummated the marriage yet. That doesn't take place till after the marriage ceremony. But at this time, the official arrangement has been made. Well, then it's at this point we see that Mary is found to be with child. You see this also in verse 18, tells us that, that Mary is found to be with child. And, and the fact that the Bible says she's found to be with child doesn't mean that there was a surreptitious attempt on Mary's part to, to conceal her pregnancy. It simply means that her pregnancy became obvious, or, or maybe she was the one to, 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 uh, to inform Joseph that she was uh, pregnant. We don't know how the details played out, because in the scripture reading we read from Luke chapter 1, we see that shortly after she finds out she's pregnant with, with uh, the Messiah, she then goes to Elizabeth and is with Elizabeth for three months. So we're not sure of the arrangement of, of, how, um, of how Joseph found out that she was with child, but in any event, this was, this was the case. And, and according to the text, she is found to be with child, and it says there that she is to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And this simply means that Mary's pregnancy was a miracle performed by the Holy Spirit, that she was pregnant apart from the normal means of conception. Now, we should note, uh, just in passing as we look at this passage, that there is, um, that there is sometimes there's confusion uh, on the, the virgin conception of Jesus. And sometimes it's referred with, to, sometimes it's confused with the Roman Catholic doctrine referred to as the Immaculate Conception. And then sometimes the Immaculate Conception is confused with the great Immaculate Reception, 
which happened with the Steelers in the 1970s. But I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to confuse you this morning. But the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth are two different things. Uh, they're not referring to the same thing. When when the Catholic doctrine speaks of the Immaculate Conception, it's the belief that Mary, that when Mary was conceived in her parents' womb, that she was conceived without original sin. So that's why it's immaculate, because, because she is believed to have escaped what every other descendant of Adam was not able to escape, a, a sin nature. And so they believe that it's immaculate in that sense. The problem, of course, is that the immaculate uh, conception is, is not found anywhere in the Bible. And to the contrary, uh, Mary even says in Luke 147, she refers to God, her Savior. She was a, a godly woman, but she was a normal woman in every respect, uh, including uh, her, her, sin, her sin nature. As we move on to the passage, we see Joseph's response to this pregnancy. And this brings us to verse 19. Matthew tells us that Joseph was, and it says here that he was a just, he, he was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So obviously, and understandably, Joseph is disturbed when he finds out that Mary is with child and, and probably doesn't believe uh, her words that it's from the Holy Spirit. And so by all indications in this passage, Joseph has made up his mind that he's going to divorce Mary uh, from this relationship. So unlike our culture where sex outside of marriage is assumed and accepted and, and even celebrated, in this day it was condemned by the religious and the non-religious alike. And we know that according to the Mosaic law, it was punishable by death, although there's no evidence that in this day it was, it was continuing to be practiced. So Joseph is planning to divorce Mary. But because he's a just man, and because he's a, a merciful man, he's not willing to make a public spectacle of Mary, and so the text tells us that he's going to, to put her away privately or divorce her, divorce her quietly. You know, it's interesting to note that we have very little information regarding Joseph in the Scriptures. In fact, most of all of what we know is found right here in the first chapters of these, of, of these birth accounts of Jesus, but then we don't know much about, about Joseph moving forward. The Bible tells us nothing about his life, and, and, but what we do know is that the little that the Bible gives us, it, it portrays him as, as a God-fearing man who walked in obedience to the Lord. So even when he perceived that his fiancée had sinned against him, he was looking for a way to be gracious and, and divorce her. In fact, later on in the story, we'll see that as the angel appears to Joseph, Joseph obeys the Lord and, and takes Mary as his wife. He doesn't have sexual relations with her until after uh, Jesus is born. And it would seem that Joseph doesn't get an, enough credit for his character as we see it revealed in these passages. Well, we see next then that an angel visits Joseph in verse 20. We see that as Joseph is considering what to do about Mary, that an angel appears to him in a dream. Now, you'll notice that, that dreams become a significant theme in these early chapters of, of Matthew. In fact, this is the first of four dreams in the birth narratives. As Jesus, as the, as the dream comes to the wise men, as the dream comes to Mary and Joseph later on in chapter 2. And so this is a, a primary way in which the Lord is leading at this time. 
And notice with me the first words of this dream. The angel says to him, Joseph, son of David. Now, we have already in the previous passage unpacked the significance of this idea of Jesus being the, the, or Joseph being the son of David and Jesus likewise being the son of David. And so what's happening here is the angel is preparing Joseph to receive this news about Mary and reminding him of, of his lineage in the line of David. Okay, where he stands in biblical history. In fact, we read in our scripture reading that, that the angel Gabriel promises to Mary that, that this coming Messiah would, 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 would sit on the throne of David and, and rule forever, as was promised in the, in the Davidic covenant. So there's, there's, what we'll do these, these narratives is all this Davidic language, as Jesus is the promised D- Davidic king. And that's what's happening here as the dream begins, as he says, Joseph, son of David. But then the angel says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now we know from Luke 1 that Mary already knows these details. But now Joseph is receiving these details as well. But what's even more significant is what the angel tells him next in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. And here we find the key phrase to this entire narrative. The angel says, that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, most parents get to name their baby, and as of late, I mean, in these these days and years, it seems like parents try to pick the strangest name that they they can, but but in this case, uh, parents get to name their kids, but in this case, they're told what the name is going to be, Jesus. In Luke's account, Mary is told the name, But in Matthew's account is added the meaning of the name. So the name is Jesus. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew name for Joshua. And so in Hebrew, Joshua means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. And so the angel is saying, you will call his name the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Now, we'll come back to this phrase in in just a moment because this is the central phrase in this passage. But let's continue with our, 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 our narrative here in verses 18 to 25. The next thing that happens in this passage is that Jesus' birth is connected to Old Testament prophecy. So as Matthew finishes recording the angel's announcement to Joseph, he sums up the events of verses 18 to 21 by connecting them to an Old Testament prediction about the birth of Jesus. Notice how he begins verse 22, and he says, all this. Okay? Now remember that, that Matthew's primary purpose in these first two chapters is to connect Jesus' birth to the Old Testament. He has already done this through a genealogy in the first 17 verses. And now, in order to connect Jesus' birth to the Old Testament, he's connecting it to prophecies that have been made about about Jesus. Now, one mistake we can make uh, when we read Scripture is to think too much in terms of chapters. So we read chapter 1, then we might break, and then we read chapter 2, and then we we might come back to it a few days later. And and, and so we break things up into chapters. And unfortunately... This, this break between chapter 1 and chapter 2 can distract us a bit from Matthew's goal of connecting Jesus 
to the Old Testament scriptures. But if we look at chapters 1 and 2 together without this division, what we'll see is that, that this prediction in verses 22 and 23 is the first of five Old Testament quotes in, in the birth narratives of Christ. So if you're taking notes and you want to see what these are, it's chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And then he again quotes Old Testament passage in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Then in chapter 2, verse 15. Then chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And then chapter 2, verse 23. So it is rich with Old Testament context and Jesus' connection to Old Testament prophecies. But the first one of these prophecies is a quote from Isaiah 7, 14, which predicts a virgin giving birth to a son called Emmanuel. Now, in a few weeks, uh, my desire is to unpack Isaiah chapter 7 and the prophecy of Emmanuel. That's when we get to the real Christmas season. Okay, so we'll, we'll wait for that. Uh, but for now, we're, ju- we're not going to consider Isaiah 7, but just understand this, that what we have before us is this virgin conception of Jesus that Mary has. It is the fulfillment of what was spoken of in Isaiah chapter 7. Okay, we'll go back to Isaiah 7 uh, in a few weeks, but just now note that this is the passage that fulfills what Isaiah 7 spoke of. Now, the virgin birth of Christ is an important aspect of the person and work of Christ. Uh, It is prophesied in the Old Testament. It is stated clearly in the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. And even the genealogies are worded in such a way to affirm the truth of of the birth of the virgin birth of Christ. In fact, just look back at or look at chapter one in verse sixteen. Actually, start back at fifteen. Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. But then it doesn't say, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So even this, even the, the way the genealogies are worded, it's worded in a way that affirms the virgin birth of Christ. Through the centuries, the virgin birth has been affirmed by the, by the Christian church. Right? The Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Westminster Confession of Faith, when the fullness of time was come, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So it's been the unified voice of the Christian church to affirm the virgin birth of Christ. It's so important to the Christian faith that we would say this. No genuine believer can knowingly deny the virgin birth of Christ. Now, of course, one can be a believer and maybe be confused or be ignorant about the virgin birth of Christ, For many of us who were saved as children, we didn't know or even understand um, the virgin birth of Christ. But it cannot be knowingly denied by a true believer. It's that clear, and it is that important to the person of Christ. But what's interesting about the virgin birth is that while it is clearly presented as a fact in the New Testament and in the Scriptures, nowhere does the Bible state the purpose 
of the virgin birth. In other words, we don't have a, a verse that says Jesus was born of a virgin because. Okay, there's no, no stated purpose for the virgin birth. And because of this, there is disagreement as to the, the, the necessity and the purpose of Jesus' virgin birth. And so what we're left to do is, in, is to sort of connect dots with other areas of theology to understand why it was necessary for Jesus to be born a virgin, of a virgin. There are some obviously wrong ideas about the virgin birth. Uh, one is that the sin nature is passed on through the Father, and so the virgin conception of Jesus protected him from having a sin nature. Well, it is true that Jesus was, was sinless, but nowhere in Scripture do we find that the Father is the one that passes on the, uh, the sin nature. In fact, all human beings, male and female, are affected by sin, and Jesus could not have avoided a sin nature simply by not having a male parent. Okay, another erroneous view of, of the virgin birth, in some circles of Christianity, there's the belief that the virgin birth allowed God's blood to flow, to flow through the veins of Jesus. This, this might be the intent of the old line from the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. Uh, oh, that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine. You'll remember those words. This, however, is the, the ancient heresy of conflating the two natures of, of Christ. Okay, Jesus was fully God, and Jesus was fully man without conflating of, of the natures. So what then is the purpose of the virgin conception? Well, some have argued, and perhaps rightly so, that the virgin birth allowed for a way for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. So Greg Blomberg in his commentary says it this way, the virginal conception has regularly been, regularly been understood as a way by which Jesus could be both fully human and fully divine. His father, in essence, was God through the work of the Holy Spirit. His mother was fully human woman, Mary. As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the eternal penalty for our sin for which finite humanity could not atone. As fully human, he could be our adequate representative and substitutionary sacrifice. And that may perhaps be true as to, to the purpose of the virgin birth. What seems better to me, and what I've always understood, is that the virgin birth had two purposes. It had one primary purpose and one secondary purpose in, in, in happening. The first was to protect the pre-existence of Christ. Okay, so, so natural conception between a man and a woman results in the creation of a new person, both body and soul. But Christ already existed. He was eternally God before time. And so he had to take on his humanity in a different way. So procreation would have, would have, would have been the creation of a new person, but the virgin birth allowed for the pre-existence of Christ to still be, to guard for the pre-existence of Christ because Jesus takes on humanity, there's not a new person being created in procreation. So the pre-existence of the virgin birth, or the pre-existence of Christ, is guarded in the, in the virgin birth. The second reason, and, and, and the more secondary reason of the two, was it was necessary to protect Jesus from inherited corruption, which passed through the normal means of procreation. So when, when, when a baby is conceived... 
by the normal means of procreation, it, it inherits Adam's sinful guilt. Now, Jesus is sinless because he is God, but his sinlessness is preserved by the miracle of the virgin birth. And so this is most likely the reason for the virgin conception of Jesus. And there's room for, for disagreement because the scriptures don't state this uh, so, so clearly. But this is most likely the reason for the, for the conception of Christ. Well, this leads us to Joseph's response in obedience of the angel's message. Notice verses 24 and 25 again. In verses 24 and 25, we read this. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we see that Joseph did exactly what the angel had instructed him to do. He took Mary as his wife. They were married prior to the birth of Jesus. And Joseph did not have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to Jesus. Now, there's another Roman Catholic doctrine that sort of creeps into this idea of Mary, and it's referred to as the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. But clearly, this is not the case, right? Verse 25. Is, is pretty clear that he did not have relations with her until after Jesus is born. And then Mark 6, verse 3, tells us that Mary and Joseph went on to have more children after this, something that's kind of difficult to do while maintaining uh, one's virginity. Now, let's turn our attention to the key phrase here found in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, as we sit here in November 2023, and we read this phrase, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, it is almost impossible for us to grasp the surprise of such a statement. He will save his people from their sins. And such a statement would have shocked most Jews living in Jesus' day. And they wouldn't have been shocked in a good way. They would have been shocked in a bad way. And in order to understand this, we need to understand the political climate of, of Jesus' day and when Jesus was, was, was born. To do this, we need to back up about 600 years. Okay, so if you go back in your minds to... Uh, the ends of, of Chronicles, and you, you, you remember of the, the Babylonian captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he ruled over the Babylonian Empire, and, and under his rule, in 586 B.C., the Jewish people were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon for 70 years of captivity, or what we refer to as, as the exile. And there's a sense in which, as as these believers are living in the day of the birth of Jesus, they still are, are believing that they're under exile. Okay? There, there's no king sitting on the throne. During Nebuchadnezzar's rule and reign, and, and during the time where the Jews are, are still in captivity, you'll remember that, that, the, that Babylon was taken captive by the Persian Empire under the leadership of Cyrus. Now, Cyrus, under God's sovereign rule, allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland and to begin to rebuild their city and to, to rebuild the temple. 
However, they did not have their own king, and they were still under the reign of the Persian Empire. Well, after the fall of the Persian Empire, you'll remember from world history that Alexander the Great conquered the known world. Alexander's desire was to spread Greek culture and language throughout the known world, and he was very successful at doing so. And that's why our New Testament is written in Greek, because Greek was the common language of the New Testament times. Well, after the fall of Alexander was the establishment of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire ruled the known world at the birth of Jesus Christ. Rome was less interested in in spreading Roman culture. They were more interested in ruling over their subjects and collecting taxes uh, for for their own benefit. So now at the time of Jesus comes on the scene, it had been about 580 years since the Jews were ruling themselves with a king on their throne in their homeland. And they hated the fact, they hated the fact that the Romans were ruling over them and taxing them so heavily. And they were longing and expecting this one, this Messiah, who would come and deliver and bring political freedom from the rule of the Romans for the people of Israel. And, and, and sit again on the, the throne of David freeing them from Roman tyranny. And this is the political climate of the day. Okay, so so understand this backdrop against what Matthew says. So now we can begin to understand why Matthew's comments are so shocking to these believers. Because they were expecting political salvation, and the angel says that Jesus would save people from their sins. It's almost as if they would have been like, yes, finally, Messiah is here, he's come, he's going to save us. Wait, wait, what? Save us from our sins? That's not what we're expecting. See, they were expecting political bondage to be saved from political bondage, not spiritual bondage. Now, just to clarify, they were not entirely wrong in their expectation of political salvation. And in fact, that's what Jesus is going to do in the second coming when he establishes his kingdom. He's going to fulfill his promises that have social and political implications. But this was not the only purpose for Christ's coming. In fact, chief among Christ's purpose was to give himself a ransom for many. In fact, you remember that, that Jesus even rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing of the spiritual necessity of Christ's first coming. Right? He says, unless one is born again... You cannot enter the kingdom of of heaven. And he says, but you're a religious teacher and you don't even know these things. Right? So they should have known that Jesus was coming with a spiritual purpose, but their expectation was that he would come with a political mission. So part of the problem, though, is that they had perceived that their chief problem was political and not spiritual. And so such a statement by Matthew would have been shocking, dumbfounding, and probably even discouraging. Because this is not what they were expecting, nor was it what they thought they needed. Now, in order to understand their confusion, let me see if I can illustrate this for us. There are a number of things from which you and I would love to be saved. So if you grew up in the 1980s, you remember the famous jingle, 
by the time I grab my books and give myself a look, I'm at the corner just in time to see the bus fly by. It's all right because I'm saved by the bell. Anybody else remember, remember that tune? Okay. So if you can think back to your school days or the students among us and you had that project that you're, it was almost your time to present and then the bell rings and it's like, yes, I've got like one more day to work on this or two more days to work on this. I'm, I'm saved by the bell, as it were. For others, we'd like to be saved from other things. Maybe it's some outstanding debt. Maybe it's a circumstance of life from which we'd like to be saved, cancer or sickness. For others, it's maybe an impossible situation that you feel like you can't get out of and you can't continue another day. We all want salvation from, from something. We all want deliverance from, from something. Now imagine with me that you were given the option of being saved by the bell or saved from your sins. Which would you choose? Well, as you're plumbing the depths of Shakespeare at 220 in your British literature class, being saved from the bell, it seems like a pretty appealing option, does it not? Or imagine with me that you're given the choice to be saved from your mortgage or saved from your sin. Well, it would be nice not to feel the financial pressure and to be saved from those things, okay? Or imagine you're given the choice to be saved from some sickness, maybe from cancer, or saved from your sins. Which would you choose? Well, if you're presented with these scenarios, you would most likely choose to be saved from the thing that you perceived to be your greatest need or your biggest problem. So if you perceived cancer to be your biggest problem, that would be your choice. But if you perceived sin to be your biggest problem, then obviously you would choose to be delivered from sin. And this is the dilemma in which the Jews in Jesus' day found themselves. They were expecting political salvation only instead to have Jesus bring salvation from sin. And many were disappointed because they perceived political oppression to be their biggest problem. But what they needed to understand was that sin was their biggest problem. In the same way, I think you and I need to understand that sin is our biggest problem as well. See, something like cancer can take your life, but after we die, we will stand before the righteous judge and we will give an account for what we did with our sin problem. And at that point, something like cancer will seem to have little significance. In fact, later in the book, Jesus says these words, do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. See, our biggest problem is our sin problem. It's your biggest problem. It's my biggest problem. Because as we came into this life, we came into this life rebellious against the holy God. And the punishment for that problem is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. So if we die in our sins, we fall into the hands of an angry God who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that thought we're often able to, to push it out of our minds. We don't think about it enough as a, in terms of the, the, the deadly consequences of eternal torment because of our rebellion against God. That's our biggest problem. 
Nothing in this life can compare to the problem of standing guilty before a holy God. But that's why God sends Jesus, to save his people from their sins. He comes, he lives a perfect life, he dies a sacrificial death that we deserve to die. And as he hangs on the cross, God is pleased to take the punishment that we deserve and to put it on Jesus. And then the message of Scripture is, if we'll turn from our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus, we will be forgiven, and those consequences of eternal condemnation will be erased, and we will receive eternal blessings in Christ. It's interesting that this, almost every commentator that I read, says that this phrase, he will save his people from their sins, is an allusion back to Psalm 130. Now, if you're like me and the psalm, and, and a pastor says, well, it's, it's, it's Psalm such and such, you're like, okay, well, I don't off the top of my head remember what Psalm 30 was. But if I were to remind you, this is the psalm we just memorized together as a church. So you remember the words of Psalm 30, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And then it says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? That's our problem, right? If, if the Lord counts our transgressions and holds them to our account, we cannot stand before the Lord. We're guilty every time. But it says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So Jesus' purpose in coming was to pay the penalty for our sins so that you and I might be forgiveness, forgiven. And then the psalm finishes up this way in verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And there's our allusion to Matthew chapter 1. So this is the purpose for which Jesus came, to save us from our sins. Now, there's sort of two responses that we should have here, or two types of people maybe who are responding to this, to this text. The first, you might be here, and you're not a Christian. Uh, you're sort of interested in, in Christianity. You're willing to, to, to consider the, the propositions before us in this text, but you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, Frank, can I just say that, that you are in danger that, of, of facing eternal condemnation because of your sin. But that God in his grace has provided a way for you to escape through Jesus Christ, dying and paying the penalty for your sins. And if you'll turn from your sins and believe in Jesus, you'll be forgiven and adopted into his family. That's one type of person who responds to this sermon. But there's another type. If you're here and you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is a cause for rejoicing, a cause for rejoicing in the steadfast love and redemption of Christ. Because while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God in his grace saved us. So all the, the consequences and the guilt and the shame associated with our sin those have been put on Christ, and we have become children of God. If we remember that that was our biggest problem, then we will remember that great thanksgiving is owed to Christ 
for our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the passage before us and the chance to study the person and work of Christ. It's our prayer that as these words were spoken that you would be at work in our hearts, that if there's someone who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would recognize their need for salvation and repent and believe even today. And for those, my brothers and sisters here, who, who have repented and believed, Lord, would you continue to bring these truths to the forefront of our minds? That our debt before you that we could not pay was our greatest problem, was our biggest concern. And now, no matter what goes on in this life, what trials, what circumstance we face, we know that it, it all pales in comparison to the great joy we will experience of being with you for all eternity. So Lord, give us joyful hearts as we respond to the truths of the gospel this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.